Stafford at the tone. Leave your name and message. I'll get back to you. You know, in last week's episode, you never even mentioned that everyone's doing surrealism right now, and they don't even know that they're doing it. Um, we were supposed to do that? And you're listening to Flum in the Morning with Wacky Wayne. Hey guys, it's me, Wacky Wayne. Let's just open up the calls and see what's going on. I saw the new trailer to Avengers. It was great, awesome time. What trailer did you see this weekend? Go ahead, you're on the air. Um, this is Wacky Wayne, Flop in the Morning. Hey, Go ahead. Hey, hey, Wayne, I just saw a trailer on fire on 50. There's and what did you think of it? It's... Oh, hey, that's another call coming in. Let me get that. Oh, okay. Hang on. I just... All right. Hey, hey, this is Wacky Wayne and Flop in the Morning. Go ahead. Give us your... Uh, what's your favorite trailer going on right now? Well, my name is... It's cheap, Dan, and my favorite trailer is the one I can break into. All right, well, I'm going to have to hang up now. Wait, wait. All right, okay, wait, it's okay, it's okay. It's supposed to be a fun, light morning show. Uh, You're going to get through it. You're going to find someone who's going to have a good time, and they want to have a good time. Why don't people in Sacramento want to have a good time? They just want to talk about pop culture and fluff. Um, Wayne, <laughs> yeah, Wayne, yeah. It's your producer. Yeah. Uh, we have more calls. Oh, are we on There's, the air? I thought we took a break. Still, no, we didn't go to commercial. Do we need to go to commercial? No, no. I'll, Let's I'll, go. To, I'll we'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Wayne, we're gonna go to commercial. <laughs> just fine. And here's a few words from our sponsors. Flum presents. Far 23 Dust Blue Event. Next Tuesday, April 23rd, 2019. Celebrates 100 years of Bauhaus. Celebrates 106 years of Malefic. Hence on letterpress printing and art. Live jazz combo. And live DJ. At a photography studio. Location in Sacramento, California, USA. Everything blue. Details at flom.us slash blue event lineup. Or at flom.us slash 423. Five minutes past 12 midnight. My name is Napoleon Solon. I'm an enforcement agent, Section 2. From Sacramento, the heart of California, and around the world, Genuine Modern Radio.
Radio Flong. Larger groups make poorer and more emotional decisions than small groups or individuals. Psych2go.tumblr.com Individuals. Oh, are you recording already? Yeah, oh, <laughs> I just <okay>. started. <laughs> oh, so... Uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, just... Uh, that's something like where did this flom thing come from because there is a philosophy yeah well I think a lot of the personification people see of flom right now is based off like lots of voices lots of different people are in it but I don't think that necessarily overshadows that it still highlights on individuals at individual times you know we're always like focusing on one person even if it's just for a moment but to show like this is them this is their work And and, well, that's a philosophy that I came up with uh, on my own. I I think everyone should explore what their philosophies are and then change them as necessary. But what happened was I I was a late night TV person and I watched a lot of David Letterman. I would just basically stay up late because that's when you get a lot of cool things done. And after Letterman, before Carson Daly even showed up, was a show called Later with Bob Costas. And Costas did his homework. It was probably one of the first interview shows I saw that wasn't as superficial as The Tonight Show and the other things that were on. And Costas would dig... George Carlin was on the show, and he started talking about his philosophy towards life, how basically, if we were humans and we weren't part of a big group and pretending to want to be in that group and actually doing what we're best at, imagine if every person reached that potential. Imagine if every person was able to find what they're good at. And one of the things he mentioned was... When you get the large groups, people buy into things or agree to believe things that really aren't who they are. How can you get an entire group of people that think entirely alike and agree to it? And so when everyone starts marching together like that, the next thing that shows up are armbands and other (laughs) things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so with Flom, I'm big on the idea that one person can make a big difference in the world. Yeah, it's, you know, still a collective, but a collective that highlights the individual, you know, shine of each person. I think even in the Flom aesthetic, it reflects that because there's a lot of like a type of collage work. We were just talking before recording how I'm not good at collage stuff, so that's why I can't do Flom aesthetic artwork. Uh, Hannah Hawk, go look at it. That's your starting point. I mean, everything that we have in Flom has something to do with some piece from art history, some person from art history that could inspire you to go a lot farther. Which, again, is just highlighting on other individuals that aren't even part of the current uh, faux historical art movement. No, that's because they're all dead. But yeah. they were they were all influencing each other and can influence us today. Radio Flom takes a look at 
Asian boss. If you're not part of the collective in Asia, then you basically are shunned. Hey guys, it's Jasper from Asian Boss. Recently in China, the fashion brand Zara has been under fire for supposedly uglifying the image of Chinese women. Vogue has also been criticized for perpetuating a stereotype of Chinese features by using this model. The question is, do ordinary Chinese people really find these models ugly? What's considered beautiful in the eyes of ordinary Chinese people? We hit the streets of Shanghai to find out. I expect everyone to be to go to a good college, to get a good job, and to settle down, and that's it. And if you don't do that, then you're rejecting the collective ideals. And that's one of the reasons why Asian Boss got started, is because these two guys, one is Korean, the other one is half Japanese. And somehow they found their way to Sydney, and they were both working in Sydney. Steve was a lawyer, and Kay was an architect. And they quit their jobs because they weren't feeling it. And then they decided to follow their passion. And so they started doing these videos because they want to open a dialogue in Asia about what's going on in Asia. And they also wanted to open a dialogue so that Western cultures would better understand Asia. And they came to the conclusion that people are not thinking critically. People are not talking to each other. People don't care what's going on. They're not curious. And they wanted to get this going because they wanted a dialogue to get people to start thinking for themselves. But it's very similar to where we were in the 50s. Everybody looked the same. There was a specific ideal of beauty standards. There was a specific ideal of the perfect man and what it means to be the perfect man and what it means to be the perfect woman. More importantly, what it means to be the perfect wife. And all the houses were the same and all the cars were the same and all the kids were the same and all the people were the same. And that whole collective ideal that we had in the 50s is really what's going on in Asia right now. And the older generation basically sits around and tells the younger generation, you need to go to a good college, you need to get a good job. Period. Oh, and by the way, you look like you've gained a couple of kilos. You better go on a diet. So the younger generation is saying, I'm working 14 hours a day and I'm studying my ass off. I, there was a comment from a high school kid in China who doesn't get home until 10 p.m. every day. So he starts at like 7 in the morning and goes till 10 p.m. And he says it's not right. But that's just the way it is. And the adults just say to them, get off your lazy ass, go to good school, get a good job. They're not even saying to get married anymore. They don't even care about that, which is another reason their birth rate has fallen. Nobody wants to have kids because they don't have time to have kids. They don't have time for relationships. So they, they've invented robots now to, to replace the spouse in the relationships. And so what's happened in Japan is you have this infantilized mentality where these people just want to sit at home and be happy and play games and be cute and be happy pop stars because that is the antithesis of what they're being told they need to do. But I watched a video yesterday with a bunch of young people who were asked if they're living the lives that they want and they all said no. They don't have the right to live their dreams and aspirations. They have to just pretend they don't have dreams and aspirations because their role is to be a salary man or whatever. In India, it's gotten to the point where the only two viable careers are engineering and doctors. Women should be doctors and men should be engineers and that's it. So then it begs the question, well, what do you do when you have too many doctors? They leave the country.
How are we getting out of that? Well, our society has changed. I mean, we're not the same as we were in the 50s. The problem we have is apathy. We have a lot of young people who don't want to do anything because they can't figure out their, their aimless and their directionless. And because they don't have society telling them what they need to do, they don't know what to do, so they're not doing anything. And we still have a ridiculously high suicide rate. So I don't think we're much better off than they are, if, if at all. It's just different. We're the ones having the shootings all the time. We're the ones with the highest prison population in the world. Is our culture evolving? Is it improving? That's debatable. Our culture isn't as strict and rigid as it used to be. But there's obviously something that's not right. I mean, yes, we're, we are free to be who we want to be. Oh, the other thing, in Asia, tattoos are still verboten. If you have tattoos, you won't get a job, and they make no bones about it. Tattoos are very underground, because they show an individual side that you can't have in Asia. For more authentic insight into the latest news and cultural trends from all over Asia, be sure to subscribe to Asian Boss and follow us on our social media. DGTLCLR is Devro Jennings, and here is Haircut off the Tetra album.
takes one radio flam all right and with me i have hi my name's david loretta mola i am known as the poet and yes i'm the grand slam champion of sacramento been part of the national poetry slam i've worked with the california democratic convention all over the place <laughs> yeah See, and that sounds like a lot, and there's still even more about there, you. There I know, <laughs> you know, you're part of uh, ZFG. Yep. Uh, you were part of uh, the Empire Arts Collective, right? Are you still with that? Uh, yeah, actually, I currently host uh, open mics whenever they need me to, on usually second Thursdays over at um, Oblivion Comics and Coffee. Just before this, you were even saying uh, you've done like podcasting, also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to be part of. It was actually uh, number one on iTunes for sexuality for the for like months it was um brown chicken brown cow it was a sex positive talk show i think it's still going but i'm not 100 percent sure i haven't double checked that oh okay but it, it's something we can at least find the archive for right oh yeah and on top of that i'm actually starting a new project where i combine pro wrestling with spoken word it's called swf it's um on April 20th, I would love to have people there. Where are some good places uh, for people to find like some of your, your current information stuff? Uh, you can catch me at and yes poetry. That's A-N-D-Y-E-S poetry. On Instagram is my main one. I love to post videos of me uh, singing while cooking bacon. Also on Facebook. Also on Twitter. You, I have the website andyespoetry.com. And yeah, those are the uh, the big spots to catch me on. All right. I just want to get that out of the way first because you're involved <laughs> in so much. Maybe they can try to follow along via the web. I have a spoken word album already, but I'm working on my first music album. Music's been a love of mine since I was a little kid. I'm a singer, and um, it's called Life, Rebirth, Repeat. It's about me kind of dealing with my, my brother's passing about two years ago. And um, well a year and a half ago. And um, so a lot of the themes are about death, but put in a more positive light and rebuilding yourself when you lose someone and just the, the human experience in general. With my poetry, I've always aimed to be very down to earth with people so that everybody can understand the concepts I'm trying to get across. But with my performance, for me, it's... Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example I used to be Spacewalker's Unicorn, where while uh, Spacewalker's an electronic funk, wonderful human being, musician, and I would be behind her doing storytelling with my body while dressed up as a unicorn, as I'm telling these stories that could either be mythical or very down to earth. Kind of come out of my shell a bit when it relates, as it relates to, um, to being comfortable with my art and being able to, to not just try to entertain an audience, but really express myself the way I want to express myself. And it like, when I first started, all I wanted was crowd applause and, you know, a room full of people clapping for me. I couldn't make me happier. And I realized that what it was doing to my art was really forcing me into this box where I perform the same way. And I write the similar, almost the same poem repeatedly. And it, it just wasn't very fulfilling on a personal level, because now I feel like a, a poetry robot. It can be fulfilling just on the presentation, but the actual like work you're creating doesn't have yeah. that, that thing fulfilling just to complete it in the same way anymore. I, I yeah. definitely get that. Do you have like some examples? Yeah. Um, let me, 
Let me pull the thing out. So in this, this is a, a piece that I'm still working on. It's kind of in the middle of being worked on, but it's a wrestling match with a man facing off against depression taken from an announcer's perspective on the situation. Tonight, in this very ring, we watch a, a veritable David versus Goliath as tonight, one man wrestles his own depression to pinfall or submission. Listen as the crowd noise simmers just above silence and anticipation. Man waits already in the ring as depression walks out in full fanfare. A gold belt, an entourage of anxiety, and a whole lot of swagger as he slides into the ring so smooth his chest barely grazes the canvas. The crowd roars its hate as the bell rings. Depression slips brass knuckles out of its tights and onto its fists. Anxiety climbs in the ring to distract the ref as punch is thrown. Plants man across the chin. Man falls unconscious. Depression puts one boot on his chest. Ref counts for what in what feels like slow motion. One, man is hopeless. Tired of waking up in hospital beds because depression broke him again. Of all these desperate phone calls to friends late night never answered when he needs them to. And lying in that ring, blood pouring from the open wound in his head. The last count coming down, he watches in slow motion. As the ref's hand draws closer to the mat, he realizes no one could save him from this except for himself. Shock screams ring out from the crowd. Man's shoulder slips up from the canvas. They both stand. Man backs his opponent into the corner, throws his fist at depression again and again and again. The crowd roars into life as man drives depression into the mat and covers for the pin for the first time in his entire existence. It feels like he might just win. Ref drops to the floor. The arena shakes from the sound of it all as the crowd counts along. One, two, depression shoves man off. This is what kind of bullshit did you think this was? A hallmark moment? Clinical depression is a lifelong condition. You cannot fight it with cute memes and wishful thinking. Pulling yourself up by your bootstraps does not make you fly. Physics doesn't work like that. Depression doesn't work like that. Man stumbles to his feet, still dazed, his whole world still shaken from brass knuckle punch of his condition. Depression springs off the ropes, bores itself through man's chest, almost tears him in half, covers him. The crowd drops silent as the ref counts one, two, three. The audience leaves, goes back to their families disappointed as man lays in the ring, a broken heap of bones, beaten, but still breathing. And in the morning, he laces his boots, stretches himself for the day's fight to come. He knows he won't win. But he keeps trying, and someday he's going to learn how to fight. Wow. <laughs> I wow, that You really kind of just tapped into, you know, not only like a, a, the metaphor, but also you really got to the, the physical way of like, yeah, depression doesn't work like that. Like just straight out, no analogy. Like you, you got to realize like that's not how it is. You know, yeah. you can't fix it with like these means and small things. But then you go back to the the relating it to, to this wrestling match, which for one, you know, depression sometimes is about you know, putting on a performance just to function, yeah. uh, you know, and, and wrestling can kind of, you know, relate to that and everything. And I said for the longest time, like every morning I have to fight 
just to function as a normal human being. So it's weird. I went through this wrestling kick. I used to love it as a kid. And then it kind of got brought back into my life through a few friends who started working in different professional wrestling federations. And so I got onto this whole concept of wrestling, trying to figure out how to relate it more to different themes and take it out of its usual box of just entertainment. You know, I feel like poetry still has this stigma that has to fall under like certain uh, like guidelines and themes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people kind of think, oh, it's either like sad and edgy or just like pretty and flowers but like it can really be anything i I will tell you the one of the most powerful poems i've ever heard and it's gonna sound weird because you haven't heard it um is a poem about pokemon uh the national poetry slam in 2015 i went to what they call a nerd slam it's just a bunch of nerdy poets who come together and share their pieces about nerdiness and such but uh actually there were two there were two oh there were two one was about pokemon in the video games for pokemon You never know who the dad is. And all it said is that the dad, I believe, went off to war. So it's these letters from the kid to the dad about how much he misses him. And I was like, oh. And it sounds like if you're listening and you don't understand, it sounds like, oh, that's stupid. That's just the – but no, it's one of the most powerful things I've heard. The other one was the Hulk making breakfast. And it's it's, uh, the Hulk wakes (laughs) up and he wakes up on the wrong side of the bed and he's, you know, cooking the eggs and he accidentally smashes the eggs because, of course, he's the Hulk. And by the end of it, he does the flip and the egg comes down in the pan and it's Bruce Banner ready for the day. And I was like, oh. It's it's just a... I don't know if I conveyed it correctly, but it's it's a really... If you watched Hulk Hogan and Macho Man break up over Miss Elizabeth, you understand how deep of a moment that was. If you didn't see it, there's no conveying what that felt like. Like, at the time. (laughs) Yeah, like... I'm having such a hard time conceptualizing that. Exactly. But like any wrestling fan, you just bring up that fact and they go, Oh, I remember that. And it was this. And like, there are people who legitimately cried over that moment, but you hear it now and you're like, Hulk Hogan, you mean that guy who got accused of like racism and all sorts of things. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I associate with like the stretchy man toy, you know, cause Mm. I think I had a Hulk Hogan version of those once as a kid. So (laughs) it, um, I heard a really interesting analysis about it where you look at wrestling as a, as an art form and it's like the WWE is an art piece that has been going on for about 30 years now, 30 to 40 years where it's one long story. (laughs) It's kind of how they tell the story and they refer almost its own epic. Yeah. It's own epic. And that's not to say that pro wrestling has always been the deepest uh, medium. If you watch in the early two thousands, especially it was uh, a lot of trash. (laughs) Uh, What are some other things you've like used uh, poetry to uh, like kind of explore and elaborate on to other people? Oh, a whole number of things. Um, I have major depression. And Mm -hmm. I've used it to explore that frequently. It was actually part of my self-analysis for how I analyze depression. Um, I've been working at that since I was about 15 years old. I started writing poems about depression and as a means of getting a peek into my subconscious to figure out, like, why am I feeling like this? Also, uh, homelessness as it relates to mental health issues, my experience as a um, as a first generation Cuban American in this country, a whole number of things. I'm really, I try not to bar myself from subjects unless I'm 
they're completely something that's not within my grasp of understanding. And, and I'm assuming, you know, you, you see that reflected in a lot of other poets, too. Does that usually make a pretty in like a big impact on you? Like, have you discovered different things because of poetry you've heard? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's this, uh, this poet called R.J. Walker, who's from Salt Lake City, who came into Sacramento relatively recently with a whole team of people. And he has this, A, just beautiful poetry in general, but B specifically this poem about a brick and it's it's a character piece a brick that wanted to be part of a skyscraper but is trapped inside of a a public bathroom i believe is how the poem goes no and it really like it made me start thinking rethinking the way that i process poetry because before that like i said before i was very straightforward with my poetry and i didn't really I didn't dive too deeply into surrealism or into anything that could be surrealistic in nature. And then I heard that piece and I was like, oh, there's so much you could do with just taking something simple like a brick and looking at it a whole new way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an amazing thing about art, how it has this power to communicate ideas, not only a new way, but with something that a lot of people have never even recognized as something beyond it just its own physical or uh like conceptual form you know yeah with relation to poetry i've written in the past i've um about being a uh, a first generation cuban american i've got this whole poem about being an alien where my, uh, I could just do the poem for you if you want. <laughs> yeah, let's yeah. hear it. We'll, we'll do that. It's easier than explaining it. <laughs> My father's an alien. Born outside the atmosphere of planet America, and I am his alienated son. We're left on tentacle, squid body, last name treated by others like I told him it was Blorg. And they ask, where does that name come from? What they mean to say is, are you going to eat my face off, stuff me in the alien spaceship, then carry my body back to Mars? It's what I heard you people do. And my father wants me to go see Mars, but I don't see the appeal. To me, it looks like red dust and rocks and lost Mars rovers, and I'm pretty sure there's no hospitals or running water. Like, I'm pretty sure. If I had met my namesake family, they would disown me as being a mutated freak with hair and skin that covers an endoskeleton, whereas my father is all soft shell. So this puts me in a unique position. I am half a man by human standards. Human enough to get interviews for jobs, but the first question they always ask is, so where are you from? And I know they can't do that. I know it's against the rules, but if I call them out on what they're doing, I won't have a job to come back to. So I say my last name is French. And you'd be surprised how many times it works, how many callbacks I've gotten. I don't have a statistical analysis for it, but I know every time I say I'm Martian, someone else is better qualified for the position. And people say I couldn't be Martian because I don't look like one. And I don't secrete a mucus layer on the hindsight of my torso, so I must not really be a wet back. Spick. Forget the metaphor. Sor cubano americano. Y yo no digo la lengua de mi padre very well. Because I've never been exposed to that culture outside of documentarios, and there's only so many times I can watch the Buena Vista Social Club. Like, seriously, I am a sovereign nation. Wandering your streets, a nationality undocumented, which despite its lack of heritage, does come with a good side. It means I'm not indoctrinated with cultural pride or bias, and I could see heteronormative, racist antics beyond their dividing lines and not care about how you look. Which is my way of saying 
The electrical chemical impulse that gives you the ability to think doesn't come with a dick, a vagina, or skin color. It doesn't come with an affectation for Scottish rights and quinceaneras. This is an artificial form of segregation that we call race, which is not a scientific or taxonomic designation because the genetic difference between me and you is nothing. And nothing makes me more upset than every time someone says how cool it is and I'm friends with all men, women, transgender, and gays simply because I have enough love in my heart to say, like, how does that work? I'm not making fun. I just want to learn. See, my father was an alien, always looking for home. And I don't know what home is yet, but I know home is not made in a house full of like-minded culture. I know home is what happens when I reach out to you and you reach back and hold on. I know home is a love, non-romantic that you find within others when you share it like this, open-armed. When you go to write something like this, what's kind of your process? Oh, gosh. Um, My process is usually I'll write a whole lot of garbage, (laughs) um, things I would never use, but I find a sentence, and that sentence sparks off another thought. And that thought sparks off another thought and such on and so forth. It's kind of a cascade. And uh, so with this, it started with a friend of mine uh, who's high. And he looked at me and he said, oh, Dave, what if, you know, aliens are actually aliens? And I went, <laughs> that's a stupid thought, the kind of thing a high person would say. And then it just kind of for some reason stuck with me. And I went, no, let's like explore that idea and give it its breadth. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't really written about being half Cuban. My father's from Cuba. He was part of the revolution uh, over there when he was a little kid, handing secret messages to people who were also part of the revolution, pretending to be a newspaper boy. And I'd never written about it, though. So I would get on stage, and I would get off stage, and there would be this whole huge part of my life and my experience that no one had ever noticed before. For me, it was allowing myself to feel comfortable with diving into that piece of myself and sharing it with others. You find that self-reflection when writing about it. Is there like a new experience that comes with performing it for the first time and continuously performing it? Like, did you find out new things about the self-reflection or maybe just with the communication to others after their experience of listening? There's always something that someone will come up to me after I perform and they'll notice something about the poem that I hadn't even thought of. Basically, like the first time I perform a piece, I'm just nervous about doing it correctly. So I don't really imagine because you never know, like, especially with a poem like that, if you say it in the wrong room or if you go too fast with it, people might not catch the whole poem and it might just go like, oh, that was that happened. Cool. You know, light applause. I mean, in that poem, I use uh, the derogatory for my own people with, you know, spick, wet pack, and uh, especially in rooms full of, because I'm also, I'm Mexican, uh, my grandma was from Mexico City, and for me, I was really nervous about doing it in rooms that didn't have white people in it, because I was like, is this going to hurt somebody in the room? And it was a, a point of contention, I almost didn't do the poem at all, but now it's become one of my main ones, when I, I tested it out, I gave myself the permission to test it out. And it was received very well. And I went, okay, this is a legitimate, like, it's okay. I'm not going to hurt anybody with this. <laughs> when I started writing, I had two goals in mind. One of which was when I started, I should say, when I started performing, I had two goals in mind. One of which was to talk about depression and mental health in a 
a positive light and a way of healing and a way of finding your way through it. And the other was being an introductory point for people who've never been properly introduced to poetry. And so the reason why I break away from the analogy is because I've seen it on people's faces when a poet's going in and half the room just kind of like glosses over because they don't understand what the poet's talking about and it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. So I wanted the poem to be accessible to as many people as possible. So I, I break away from it. I say, fuck the metaphor. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have this piece about Superman that I was really nervous about because I don't even hint at breaking any kind of fourth wall with it. I just do the piece. And I'm, again, learning to get more comfortable trying out different styles and things because um, I didn't want to be that poet who was just like, my thing is I break the fourth wall and I tear the poem apart. And everybody's just, instead of listening to the poem, you're waiting for when I break it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I don't like it when people can expect to get the same thing from me, I guess is the right way to put it. So because you're uh, pretty well entwined with the whole, uh, you know, network of the the local poetry community and everything, uh, what is the best way for someone in like the Sacramento area, at least to kind of get into it all? Oh gosh, we have such a beautiful, diverse scene. Um, really, you could break this city up into sections and like there you'll get a whole different audience over here and a whole different style over here from what you'll get on the other end of the city. So it really is just show up to open mics. And even if you don't perform, just sit back and listen. And if you feel like that's an audience that you feel comfortable with jumping into jump in. Um, for instance, one of my favorite places to send new people is to Shine Cafe on first and third Wednesdays at 7.30 is when they start signups. Uh, you'll probably want to get there early because she usually has long lines. But it's Speak Out Sacramento. And it's a room full of people who will love you and cheer for you loud and proud no matter who you are, as long as you're speaking your truth. So audience and style wise, what are like two big contrasting places here in Sacramento just to like Ooh. try to see like two different sides of it? So um, just off the bat, I would say Mahogany, which is over at Queen Sheba every Wednesday at 9, 10 p.m. The Sacramento Poetry Center. I know for a fact that they have open mics on 730 Mondays. The Sac Poetry Center, which tends to be a little more how do you put it? A little more traditional poetry, I guess, is the right way to put it, where it's a writer who has written their work, their purpose is for it to be written, and they read it. And it's not really performance-based so much as listen to the, the poet's words. And um, you have mahogany, which tends to be a little more, nah, it tends to be a lot more spoken word, the kind of stuff that you would hear in the National Poetry Slam or on Button Poetry. This might be a, a little off your radar, but for those that are interested in poetry that, you know, are in all sorts of different communities and stuff, because we have listeners around the world, what's like the first thing to look for to try to break into it? Would you just say like looking up open mics or I would say process? know what you want to get into with it. If you want to focus on purely the written word of it and you don't want to perform at all, there's always writing groups that you could usually in cities, there'll be writing groups. Meetup is a great app or website that you can look up. 
try them out, see how it works. Uh, if you want to do more performance-based, look up your open mic. And like I said, just show up. Even if you don't perform, just being in the room will inspire you to eventually get on stage, I've found. Yeah, actually at um, the Ultraviolet release, my uh, co-host Chad was there and actually got really inspired. And he's kind of thrown around the idea of like doing uh, some slam open poetry or open mic poetry. I'll say as someone who hosts a lot of things, I've been hosting about as long as I've been doing spoken word for about nine years. My favorite thing is the person in the back of the room who is just kind of nervous and quiet. And I'll usually point at them and go like, are you a poet? Do you want to do a thing? And they'll go, no, no, no. But by the end of the night, they're inspired and I give them one last chance. I'm like, are you sure you don't want to? And they come on up. Finally, you know, and they give it a shot and they do usually amazingly well, you know, way better than they thought in their head that they do. I mean, really, it's what I would love to see is more people. I don't know at open mics. It, like I get not that I don't love the people that I see right now. I love all the people that I see right now, but I feel like it very easily can become a, a closed loop and it very easily becomes this like, I know Jerry, I know Tim, I know you know Jessica, and there's no influx of new voice. Like the most amazing thing I've heard were these two 13-year-old kids who randomly came to my open mic one day, uh, the one I run over at Oblivion Comics and Coffee, and they had never performed before, but they were writing these two-person poetry pieces and that everything was inspired by uh, YouTube videos they'd seen. And they decided, we're just going to go out and do it. And they met me, and I'm hoping, I gave them a whole list of open mics. I'm hoping that they're still going to other open mics because they did fantastically. But um, I, I guess my point is, if you're curious about it, go just try it out. There's no harm that can be done. Yeah, I mean, you've basically given everyone listening the tutorial on how to start, so <laughs> get out there. Yeah. I settle disputes very quickly. I'm very good at it. I sleep with my back to the wall when I can sleep. I eat serpents seven times a week. It's a great good morning. Wacky way in the morning. Let's take another caller. Give it away. Give it away now. Give it away. Give it away. Give it away now. Take it. Hi. Hi. Go ahead. Wacky way. Let's hear. Let's hear your best joke of the day. Oh, okay. Um, person walks into a government facility. Who's there? It wasn't a knock knock joke. Who's there? Not a knock knock joke. Those are the best jokes I know. So a person walks into a government facility. I'm ready. Take it. And they go and sit down at their desk, and uh, then they're fired. Who's there? Not this government worker. She's gone. She. Uh, did you get fired today? I did. What do you What do you do? Okay, I'm gonna hang up. Oh, wait, wait, no, I just... Hang up. Yep. Okay. Whoa, Wacky Wayne here in the morning. What a wacky call we just had. Hey, it's Wacky Wayne. Tell us your favorite Apple Hill memory. There was one time I went to Apple Hill and I saw all these people getting apples and so I went up to an apple tree and I climbed the apple tree and then I set a bomb in the apple tree. Oh, okay. Too much. Too much. Gotta hang up on you. That's a criminal offense. 
Gotta go somewhere else. Wait, why isn't the button working? And then I realized I didn't want to do an apple tree. So I, I took my bomb and I climbed back down and I found a cherry tree and I made a cherry bomb. <laughs> Wacky ways is a great joke. Twelve people died that day. Okay, hang it up. All right. Hey, y'all. This is Katie Rain, and you are listening to Radio Flom. Vote for me to win a grant from TRCOA for $25,000. It includes $4,000 cash and, like, a music video and a lawyer and help with our business. Uh, It would be a huge help to our careers, and all you have to do is put in your email and click support. The link to vote is flom.us slash vote. Katie, that's K-A-D-Y. Thanks. Love y'all. It wasn't the roses that kept me alive. It was your sycophantic smiles and a false sense of pride. It's the gas and the road that keeps me in drive. Actually, the wind in my head keeps me from hearing your lies. What can I do? Oh, what can I do? What can I do? Oh, what can I do? What can I do to get away? Without seeing your face And that drink you always ordered Makes me sick from the taste Those friends we had, they're yours now I can't go out the door now
Quit your griping, Chewy. And get your toe out of my ear. Will you stop bumping me up? What's your estimate about progress, Captain Solo? Well, they're probably clearing us through their outer defense zones right about now. It looked like they had landing bays around the equator of that station. I guess they'll dock us there. What was all that about the escape pods and the ship's log? I doctored the log to make it look like we abandoned ship in those pods right after liftoff and sent the Falcon along on automatic as a decoy. You think they'll believe it? I don't know. At first, maybe. These compartments are shielded and hidden pretty well. Will you just give me a... Okay. Here we go. Go! Danger hides in the stars. This is the world of Jason of Star Command. A space-age soldier of fortune determined to stop the most sinister force in the universe. Dragos, master of the cosmos. Aiding Jason in his battle against evil is a talented team of experts, all working together in a secret section of Space Academy. Jason of Star Command. Jason's Star Command. That's God. That's crazy. Like that. That was the post Star Wars Gold Rush. And there was nothing. Like, you had that. You had Quark, which yeah. was the, the comedy, and we were hungry for it. Were, well, they were greenlighting like, everything with space content, which yeah. is how Battle Beyond the Stars happened. That's how Star Crash happened. That's saw how, that with my dad. Um, even, even James Bond, even Moonraker, which I, I loved that movie for decades before watching yeah. it again as an adult. I'm like, oh, this is actually a pretty bad James Bond movie. But at the time, it's like, <laughs> if I stick with this long enough, we're going to be in space, and there'll be laser guns, and you know that's when Jaws shows up, and it's like really cool. And but, the sound effects were great. That was always my thing, looking yeah. at the sound there. I mean, it was a great-looking film, especially if you're like five years old. And like Black Hole... Shit. I saw that at a double feature to drive in with the black hole. So yeah, it was black hole and Moonraker, maybe one third thing, like Swiss Family Robinson or whatever, but they were like really like uh, building off the space thing. Uh, and, then, and those are the, they, the dark film. Have you seen the black hole? It, uh, that thing scared me. It's the dark Disney, the dark Disney, Disney period. It's just like, oh my God, dude. Like I, it's, it's, a, it's an unnerving film. Like I watched yeah. it recently as an adult. And when I was a kid, I had the action figures and like you were doing drawing the comics. I would draw comics. Yeah. Of the different characters getting into different adventures and like what is the name Bob or whatever the floating robot, mm -hmm. um, and then I went back and rewatched it and I'm like, this is like a Polanski flick. This is like, <laughs> it's so strange. Yeah, this is like getting worse, right? Like, okay, but I loved it. I love it now. I love it in a different way. But it's just like, holy shit. But yeah, all those things. Battlestar Galactica was the same thing. You know, it's funny when you mentioned Jason, Jason of Star Command. I was reminded of that thing that happens when you're five or six, where like you think things are bigger hits than they actually were, right? Yeah. And so, like, to me, like, Battlestar Galactica was on for five years, but it was on for, like, 18 months or whatever. Yeah. Or, like, really the short. V miniseries was only on for a season. <clears throat> or, like, there was a show I loved called Misfits of Science that lasted oh, exactly yeah. half a season. My mom Courtney Cox. Doing it. Yep, Courtney Cox. Yeah. And I thought that was, like, the biggest show in the world because me and my six friends watched it religiously. And like nobody watched that show, which is like sad. But yeah, when you're getting it, that's that's the world. Like I know. was disturbed that Buck Rogers predicted we were going to have a nuclear war in '87. Uh. <laughs> and I, I really love that show. One of my fonts is based on lettering they had on the walls. Oh, word, Rogers. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mixed it with mm -hmm. Theo Van Dusburg's alphabet, which would go with these brackets. We know. <laughs> yeah. 
I, those, was, I had those toys too. Now that I remember it, I had uh, a lot. Micronauts. I had the comic. Oh, I loved Micronauts, but yeah. they were they were like a year before me. So like my uncle uh, had them, and then when I got old enough to have toys that were that small, it was Star Wars time. Like they were expensive, so yeah. no one really had them. They're more like for hobbyists or whatever. Yeah. Like remember Zoids. In the early '80s, they were like these little wind-up robots, but like they, you, um, they came with gears. Oh yeah! And you could, oh yeah! Yeah, and I like those. You know, I like those for a Christmas. And like later, my uncle, who's like was 40 at the time, got really into them and just had this room full of fucking toys. And it's like, what the fuck? I'm like, okay. Radio That we have seen what we thought was unseeable. We have seen and taken a picture of a black hole. Such a place where the gravity is so large that even light can't get out of it is called a black hole. It's a star in which light itself is imprisoned. Turns out a black hole doesn't look entirely black. Realize what time it is? Um, nine, I think. It's almost midnight. No. Yes. I mean, at the time when I started the project, I didn't know anything about black holes. But I knew that this was a really exciting topic and something that I could contribute to. Black holes were theoretical constructs, speculated about since 1783. In our time, we've verified the invisible. Everyone by special dispensation, the Cheshire Cat. What is Mars Optimus Act? There is an inexorable force in the cosmos where time and space are concerned. Need to feel fresh, please. The Sleepy Hippie Interview. Then when you don't feel good, try Carter's Little Limited. They do the work of caramel, but have no caramel in them. For they are simple pills. 
Someday. Are you okay? What? Yeah. Wayne, we're on commercial right now, so I'm just checking in with you. Oh, was I just in my head the whole time laughing? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry. Mm -hmm. Sorry. We had to go to commercial to, uh... Are you okay? I'm great. You you seem to be running away from something real deep. Nope. We can we can be serious. We can put you on afternoon flom. Nope, I'm gonna mm-hmm. just start drinking this bottle of gin. Julia Algretti talks to transdisciplinary artist Laura Cooper. And you have a long personal artistic history with nature works. Mm-hmm. How did you start creating nature works? As a kid, I had very long summers in the forest. My dad was a professor also. And no matter where we lived, because we moved around, we would spend three months in the High Sierra in a little tiny A-frame cabin, and I would have to occupy myself. So I would make log cabins, I would leave houses for the ferries, I would do watercolors on the porch. I had a lot of lakes and trees to look at, but maybe my favorite was making environments, like little, you know, just, I don't know, those, those... Funny nooks and crannies that you find as a young person in um, the outdoors still kind of occupy my dream life. I sometimes will run across these spaces that, you know, have you ever had the experience of an apartment or a house that you lived in that pops up in your dreams, but the spaces are rearranged or maybe they're... So I have that not just for houses, but also for my forest. So... Not to say that that's part of what my art making is now, but I would say this idea of interest for me being located in a landscape, it's like, that's just a really deep place for me. That's something nice. That's always been a location for me of making art and maybe kind of by default, but but that continues. And so this theme persists in your work even when you've started living in the city. What really makes it so important? Well, you went to my house. I tried living downtown. I tried living in a loft, and um, I think it might have to do with having control of, over my environment. I actually like when I was younger. I did a, and moved in with with my husband Nick, who already had the house that we live in, which is on a, a steep hillside in northeast Los Angeles in Glassell Park. Now it's a hit place to live, apparently, but we've been there for a lot longer than that. When 30 years ago, there were a lot of really interesting abandoned areas nearby, including my garden. It felt really good to be able to take and transform an environment in a way. So, like, and I don't even know that that's really nature. Like, nature's a super complicated term. I should probably put that right out there. I think about landscape and I tend to say landscape more. Nature is a lot of things, including like raccoons and childbirth and, um, you know, toxic allergic reactions to bees, um, all of these things I have encountered, and they are all part of nature which exists in the city, right? So I think about my landscape that I have, which is fairly wild and makes people think of it as being natural. I think of that as kind of valuable because it exists in proximity to asphalt and graffiti. Like, I think that the reason that it becomes important is because I can define myself within those limits. I can go from one very different kind of environment into this environment that I've created. And there's something really important to me about that proximity. 
Did you have similar feelings when you started making the Tangle sculptures when you started? Uh, no, actually, that's sort of interesting because I, when I talk about my garden and where I live and that kind of experience that comes sort of straight out of, for me, it comes straight out of childhood and having read a lot of The Secret Garden over and over again, like what happens when you open up the gate and there's that wildness inside and she nurtures it. Like I have all that stuff stuck in my head. That I think that that stuff is maybe not so much in Tangle and in some of the other work that I've done and the work that I've done in collaboration with my husband. Tangle's more elemental. And the work that I'm, all of the work that I'm doing right now, I'm really interested in finding um, something so elemental that some of the language and narrative around landscapes falls away. It's it's something that it actually could be inside your body or it could be in the universe. And so it's a, diff- it's a different kind of tale. And maybe it's a little bit more about tracing a shape which exists as opposed to articulating nature itself, finding a kind of, yeah, almost like a molecular structure or tracing even a kind of movement that happens. So it's, yeah, it's more basic I think called it tangle it is kind of one form for me it's one form that I'm obsessed with it's one form that has multiple manifestations even when it looks different I still sort of consider it the same thing that appears in lots of different ways to call it a tangle connotates a kind of difficulty and I could say for sure that it's been a difficult year both personally and nationally. There's another piece that I did that it wasn't in this show, but it, it was kind of at the beginning of this series of work that um, coincided with Trump's um, election. Like I went into the studio and I just was really frustrated and I didn't know what to do and I started taking this uh, stiff black nylon web material that I have and binding it with with thread. I'm making this motion with my hands of like binding something up, you know, it's this sort of like repetitive, um, fraught, anxiety-filled activity, which then made the piece which is called Black Cloud. I think sometimes there's a direct relationship to something that's going on politically or something that's going on internally. Um, I lost my father this year uh, to lung cancer and also he had Alzheimer's. And so when I say tangle and those pieces there, they do kind of feel like my brain. They do feel, I'm going to make another hand signal. (laughs) They feel like this. Hands clasping, sort of tight, crunchy, or like I can't get out. Like I'm, I'm trying to process, I'm trying to make meaning, and I can't quite make meaning out of everything because I can't get out of the multiple loops of association. Like there's all of these places that I can go in, in my thought process, and that is in the brain, right? Your neural transmitters are, are, are moving around and hopefully they make sense and you can move forward, but they don't always. Sometimes they kind of keep circulating around. When I decided to call this body of work uh, Tangle, I actually looked up Neural Tangle, which is the title of many of the works. And it is a thing which happens in Alzheimer's, which I didn't know. Um, and they have pictures of it. And it is like literally the, this kind of unraveling of of the brain, t- brain tissue or of the neural um, synapses. So it's that on kind of the darker side, but it isn't 
just that. I also think about like atomic structure and, and the way that plants look. For a while, I was obsessively collecting when plant has been too long in a pot, the, the um, roots entangle themselves. And I've always found those to be one of my favorite found sculptures. I will take the dead plant out, saw off the dead plant, blast out all the old dirt from the roots, and then you have this beautiful form that the plant grew and the plant unfortunately didn't live but in the meantime its roots were molded by the fact that they couldn't get out and that actually may be the original start for me becoming really obsessed with these grown artworks that I was finding. I'm attracted to things which exist on a micro and a macro level. If I kept going I could probably get cosmic with this too. In the the Tangled Works, the form comes up across multiple mediums, including ceramics and sculpture. Paper mache, yeah. What compels you to revisit the form across all these different mediums? I'm really interested in a kind of... And you, you can take this two ways. I'm interested in interdimensionality, which sounds a little bit pretentious, so sorry about that. What I mean by interdimensionality, one is super obvious, right? There's flat works and there's dimensional works. And on the flat works, there's often something which is also a line. So there's often 2D on top of 3D. I'm thinking about some of my ceramics that weren't in the show, but if you think about that big black piece, I think that's Tangle 4, Tangle 3, can't remember is a paper mache which was then painted and then I really really wanted a surface that would not reflect I wanted it to be like almost like a void and so I worked with sewing the black gauze onto the whole piece and then I think of that as being the sewn line is a two-dimensional line within the three-dimensional piece so I'm interested in those kinds of confusions between dimensions or like multiple layerings of dimensions. 2D and 3D and maybe some kind of implied 4D in terms of movement because I do feel like the pieces kind of imply motion as well. Interdimensionality in that way and also maybe interdimensionality, you have to keep in mind I'm a sci-fi fanatic so whether or not you see that in the work, I, I, I was feeling happy because a few people said sci-fi without knowing I was a sci-fi fanatic. So I'm like, oh, maybe it's starting to creep into the work. My interest in sci-fi makes me think a little bit about how it is we perceive what we see versus what other perceptions might be. What a line looks like in this universe might look like something completely different in another universe. I think in more general terms, in more formal terms, I'm really interested in what a line looks like when it's let loose from its ground. So the sculptures and, and sometimes the 2D works as well. There's a kind of like drawing a line and then lifting the line off of its support structure and then maybe creating another support structure, but trying to sort of find ways that the line has a freedom from constraint. What's the show's relationship with the grid? Yeah, there's a good one. <laughs> I have a really problematic relationship with grids. I have a problematic relationship with modernism. I have like I kind of, um, I both respect and I'm really irritated by the grid. It's a really fucked up grid. That's what it is, right? So like a grid is something where you locate yourself. 
I feel in a way it's like, but what if instead you picked up the grid and you shook it, you know, like what might that look like? And I, that is more interesting to me than locating myself on the grid. So maybe what I'm trying to do is instead of um, make something which is located on the grid, make something which is just more problematic locationally. How do you feel when you sculpt these forms? They're very intricate and complicated. What's the process like for you as an artist? <laughs> Long and irritating. <laughs> <laughs> if I have a really good book on my uh, earbuds, then I'm, I'm pretty good. The large sculptural works, um, the paper mache ones, it takes a long time to make them. They are tedious. They're difficult, especially when making a large one, because it's really hard to make it behave. You know, like you st I start just with newspaper, and that's really light, and you can make any shape you want, and then you start adding the, the paper mache, and it starts collapsing, and you pull it back again. and you It's this really long process where I really don't know what it's going to look like in the end with the large pieces, because I'm constantly struggling with the difference between what I do and what the material does. And I say that um, also noting that it's really important that the material doesn't behave. It's really important that the material doesn't do what I want it to do and pushes back at me. I'm very satisfied with that. It also takes a long time <laughs> and it can also be frustrating. So, I mean, that's just being an artist, right? Like sometimes you start on these projects and the project that you need to do is not something that can be realized in a fast way or in a neat and pretty way. And I think for me, it's really good to work with materials that push back because I can get very sometimes seduced into an easy solution. And so I need to problematize it for myself. And the, the kind of uh, materiality and messiness of the paper mache puts me in that space. And the same can be true for ceramics as well for me. It makes it, you know, there's a, there's a sort of, I'm trying to make these things that have a lot of airspace in them. They kind of are trying to defy gravity and then I'm working with materials that are just totally full of gravity and weight and want to plop and, you know, crack and do all of these kinds of things. So somewhere in that um, difficulty and in that struggle, I'm interested in the shape that gets created. Would you consider the process in creating these as sort of a, a metaphor for the United States' current social and political climates? Sure. Let me think about that for a minute, because not in all of them and not always. I mean, they're abstract works, and so I think that I, I wouldn't want to shoehorn meaning into just one place. I think I for sure could, could do that and to go back to the piece that wasn't in the show, but that kind of started the work. The idea of sitting with struggle and problems that you can't necessarily make sense of, that's where we are. And so it makes sense that I would be going like, okay, this is it's fine for your process to be here. There's other works I will say that um, that the hanging piece that kind of was billowing a little bit with the. It's funny that shape is kind of map-like. Like maybe that's the one that feels the most like it could be a map of the United States, right? But it's this big tangled thing. Um, that piece didn't take as long. That piece was I took a piece of Tyvek, black Tyvek and laid it wrong with the wrong side, the white side up, the back side up, and put a big brush at the, taped it to the end of a broom, and looked at the big black sculptural tangle and painted it. 
And I, this is what I do all the time. I'm a reverse drawer. I don't do drawings in order to decide how I'm going to make the sculpture. I make the sculpture and then I make a drawing from it. So that's a drawing from that sculpture. It was meant to be the 2D counterpoint to that piece. So the actual painting of it was really quite fast. The figuring out how I was going to hang it and that took friggin' forever and was really, really annoying and difficult and uh, took a long time to come to the solution that you saw in the gallery. Um, but the making of it was absolutely pleasurable and quick and to music. And I think that if I didn't find somewhere in these projects that was like that, that was super pleasurable, I couldn't do it. There's some kind of balance between these long, take forever, difficult, intricate projects and ones that are more fluid and faster. And by the same token, the pieces that were the 2D on porcelain um, drawings, those are incredibly fast. I press out a wet slab, and then while it's wet, right after it's been pressed out, I pour a bunch of underglaze onto it, because you can do the underglaze through the bisque firing. And while that's wet, I draw by pushing a... Um, a stick through the underglaze to the wet clay and so um, that all has to happen fast because nothing can dry so those are fast you just have to wait for them to go through the kiln so there's, there's really slow work and really fast work in there just all the same um, all the same shape it just has to be made in these different ways I was not trained as a sculptor. I keep finding it funny that people, when I get called that, <laughs> you know, a sculptor, or that I'm doing sculpture because I keep thinking, like, really? I was trained as a painter, both undergraduate and graduate. I was a dedicated painter. When I was first showing my paintings, I was sewing dresses to wear to the openings. And there was something about going from 2D to 3D that was in sewing that, like, you have to make something that fits. It just sort of changed my changed my mind a little bit or it made me start thinking in three dimensions. And then um, soon after that, I moved in with my husband, Nick Taggart, and um, started gardening as soon as I moved in with him. And gardening, all of a sudden, all the painting that I learned to do was happening in space. And then I started doing installation. And so now, many, many years on, I'm starting to work in, in objects. But I think there was a kind of logical growth from painting over a long, long, long period of time. But it still sort of surprises me that I'm doing sculpture now. Because it's not something I was trained to do. I figured it out. Um, to wrap this all up, what can the show teach people about you? Oh, gosh, that's a tall order. always really interested to know what people get out of the work um, about me. I'm not sure. That's kind of a good question to turn back on people. Did it teach you anything about me? I saw a lot of natural textures, like textures of your hands and kind of this intimate look into these tangles that I thought of as like not only a thought process, but as like physical pieces it felt like you were almost sharing parts of your body with us mm -hmm. like on a molecular level yeah yeah i go with that i like that i'm glad you got that out of it 
I also think that would be learning something about me. I'm pretty expository. So it's interesting to be doing abstract work because I spend a lot of my career doing much more narrative work. If there is something, and maybe this is with the piece that started this, which I think of as being like bones, I thought of it as being like bones of the landscape, but I think the body's a landscape too. And I think that there's a kind of meshing together of the language of the body and the language of the landscape and the language of the universe. Um, that's a whole hell of a lot to put into six pieces. <laughs> but I am really, really interested in that breadth. I'm interested in going from inner space to outer space and back again all the time. So I hope people got some of that. Radio Flom. Because we're about modern things. Chunks of Radio Flom. So I think what we have laid out here is a very clear moral problem. And in terms of leadership, if we fail to act, or even if we delay in acting, we will have blood on our hands. AOC. AOC. Yes. At AOC, right? Yes, absolutely. Everyone knows who she is on Twitter and everything else. I think the really unique thing about her is that she actually claps back at a lot of the people that give her grief. Yeah. And a lot of the politicians aren't quite ready for that. And unfortunately, I think that that's what happened in the rise of Trump. Yeah. But now we're actually starting to see that on the left in a really positive way. And so it's kind of interesting to see how that dynamic did was so terrible for so long and actually using that same terrible dynamic for, for good. So that's it. <laughs> Grapes with two A's can be found on Spotify, Bandcamp, etc. Here is Broken.
Tell my landlord it's not exactly going to look like Venice the way she is managing the estate with more crap everywhere. But you gotta copy the main religion right? I mean fucking consume. I said to the roof fixer, 
It's not going to look like Venice but they've got to consume and you've got to get paid. So me? I don't fucking exist. In a world of depraved consumption and worthless wrecking of the earth, when all beautiful ideas are presented and intelligence is already called by myself that self-will. When no one moves. Yes, I just sink deeper in the comforts of my own sustenance of hypersensuality. And I survive in an empty abyss. Sailing on the carcasses of imaginary virgins. Flom in the afternoon, where we talk about serious things with serious people. My name's Darlene. This is Joseph. Hi, everybody. What's going on, Joseph? So let's see what's going on. What's going on, Joseph? I had a chamomile tea earlier. It was mm-hmm. delicious with a little bit of honey, uh, locally sourced. Locally sourced. Honey and chamomile. Now, were those bees forced in hives or were those, no, those natural, natural bees? Beehives. Natural beehives. Okay, okay. And I only drank half of it and I took the rest of it and mm-hmm. I gave it to charity. That's what we do here. We give half of everything that we do to charity. Half my paycheck goes to charity. Half of my house is just open. That's charity. Mm-hmm. When I get a haircut, uh, half the hair on the ground I give to charity. Mm-hmm. I keep the other half. What's on your head? <laughs> Should we take a phone call? Yeah, let's let's take, take a, a phone, serious a phone serious call. phone call. Hello, you're on the air with Afternoon Flom. <laughs> hey, how's it going? It's going it's going well. What can I wanted to tell a knock knock joke. Alright, let's hear your knock knock joke. Knock knock. Mm-hmm. Knock knock. Oh I'm sorry, I'm peering through the peephole of my door to see what sort of entity might be there. Oh, uh, it's a it's a it's a clown. Oh, it's a clown? Yeah, it's a clown. Now, is this a menacing clown? No, I'm a normal clown. Okay, I'll open the door for you. Hello, welcome. Would you like to be in half of my house? Yeah. I'm going to call back later. Oh, oh, all right. Thanks a lot. I have not laughed since 2004. I will admit I have laughed half of that time. I gave half of my laughs to charity, so... Well, let's take another caller, right, Joseph? You want to handle this one? I'll handle one. Yeah, I'll take it. Okay, you're all right. No, um, the camule is coming back on me. Oh, dear. Yeah, that can happen. That can happen. Okay, uh, go ahead, uh, caller. You're on the air with Flum in the afternoon. Hello. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. Uh Uh-huh. What did you want to talk about? Oh, yeah, I want to talk about, uh, I want to talk about, uh, a a, a sale. A sale? A sale. I want to talk about the sale. Okay. Are you a child? It sounds like you're a child. No. Okay. I am not a child. All right. I am not a child. I am not a 3,000-year-old vampire. Okay. I am... No one asked that? I am trying to cover all bases. I figure if you say child, what's older than child? 3,000-year-old vampire. Okay. Mm -hmm. What do you want to talk about? Oh, there's a crazy sale. Okay. And I want to be serious about the crazy sale. And what is the sale? Oh, the sale is on www.website.com. Okay. Website.com. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. It's a crazy sale. Uh, they're selling pets. Free pets. 
Free sex pets. Okay, that's. I'm gonna stop you there and hang up. Oh, no, don't, don't! And now I'm gonna give half my time to you. Oh, thank you. Great, I think there's a call. Oh, okay, alright. Go ahead, do you wanna take it? I'll, I'll take the call, alright. Hello, thank you for listening to Afternoon Flom. Hello. This is another very friendly reminder for you. 423. Das Blue Event. Is next Tuesday. April 23rd, 2019. Celebrates Bauhaus 100. Celebrates Malefic 106. Live Jazz. Letterpress and Art. Free admission for you. Details at flom.us slash blue event lineup. Or at flom.us slash 423. And now. A very important holiday, message from Rome. Why is green always associated with St. Patrick's Day? 1640, they say, hey, uh, it was consideration of the Catholic Church to take part of that flag and to show unity between the two countries of Ireland and England and their differences. Well, hopefully that'll symbolize a much broader picture, not just the corned beef and cabbage served that day, not just the green beer in the bars, but the actual unity of people. How many other colors are associated with unity other than green? Well, not so much when you look at the military aspect of it, but it's still a unity between them and the trees. Give green some credit. Instead of always saying that even racism is projected, you know, sort of like this, well, there's the brown people and the white people. Well, uh, those that know color know there's more colors associated. There's light and there's dark of each color. There's even medium qualities and saturations of color. And I'd like to see that reflected on this earth, maybe symbolizing this holiday to do more with unity than just a country, but to give it a broader, more powerful message of unity. Look it up, Google it, do whatever you have to do to verify what I'm saying now. I'll stand to be corrected if someone can correct me, but joyously, I've even seen red mixed with green for unity-type holidays. So let's not smack green too hard. Let's actually give it a boost today. Let's associate it with unity. And instead of calling brown people, let's call them green. Okay, green has to do with life, with proactive uh, associations with earth and environment. It gives us oxygen, okay? It, it, it's a beautiful sight from above, below, and <laughs> just outside of your own bedroom window if you have the beauty of seeing green or plant life. It's good to be associated with nature. So let's give St. Patrick a one-up for nature, unity, and a collective of a positive chance to change the thought patterns of this planet. I wish it was mistletoe. 
Oh, Mr. Solo, you are a gay one, aren't you? Only, uh, on holidays. Parlay. Janos Stees. No Limits. There's no limits when I'm passing in a foreign. Off to the side, we don't care about nothing. Living in the moment, how I'm feeling. Walk to the side on the phone, my girl tripping. The one I know just how I did it. All I know is I'ma make a million. Yeah, they thought I never had this vision. I done met so many pretty women. Hit a four pass through. I ain't got time to look at you. See the stars in the coupe, hundred balls in the blue. In my own world, handle your girl in a hating attitude. Extrovert, but sometimes I feel intro too. I gotta move on, gotta move on, girl. Ain't go backwards, why do that for? Wanna live my life on the road and tour and spit that cocaine while these bitches go insane. There's no limits when I'm passing in a foreign. Off to the side, we don't care about nothing Living in the moment, how I'm feeling Walk to the side, on the phone, my girl tripping The one I know just how I did it All I know is I'ma make a million, yeah They thought I never had this vision I done met so many pretty women, no I get lost every time I look at you Different hairstyles make you brand new The success for you do what you gotta do I've been gone away for a long time But it's glow time I'm about to shine Put some walk in it Start mixing it Do your dance Wave your hands like you run the shit Shoulders to the side like you front and click Let them know that you want some more other shit Put some walk in it Start mixing it Do your dance Wave your hands like you run the shit Shoulders to the side like you from the click Let them know that you want some more other shit Yeah Speakers on blast I came out to last Up all night Yeah, would think that I was sad Live the life that you really wish you had I'ma get it while I can I'ma chase the bad When I'm passing in a foreign Off to the side We don't care about nothing Living in the moment how I'm feeling Walk to the side on the phone, my girl trippin' The one I know just how I did it All I know is I'ma make a million, yeah They thought I never had this vision I done met so many pretty women, no some walk in it, start mixing it Do your dance, wave your hands like you run the shit Shoulders to the side like you front and click Let them know that you want some more other shit Put some walk in it, start mixing it Do your dance, wave your hands like you run the shit Shoulders to the side like you from the click Let them know that you want some more other shit Yeah Radio Flom is sponsored in part by People with dark circles under their eyes Makers and doers People who stay up late and get things done when the rest of the planet is tucked into their nice, 
cozy Laura Ashley duvet with matching pillow shams. People. Carter's little liver pills. The trouble lies in your last four or five feet of intestine. It's like an old cracked garden hose that doesn't work right. Until you take Carter's. Take Carter's today. Diego Val Music. At DiegoVal.com. LTHMMusic.com. And. Our totally cool ass level sponsor. Squadcast.fm. Remote interviews for professional podcasters. And. People. With dark circles under their eyes. How do you feel about AOC? She real good. From Sacramento, the heart of California, and around the world. This has been Radio Flog. Recorded live before a studio. Contributors this week, in order, were... Lorraine Richardson. Steve Mehalo. Jeu de Pré. Kevin Scott Brown. Vicky. Milk Surface. Mehalo Kitty. DGTLCLR. David Loredi Mola. Kadir Rein. Jason Malmberg. Anton Music Ubix Liama Circuit Remix. Honorim Cathy Bauman. Julia Algretti. Laura Cooper. Darius Forrest. Christina Palmé. Graav. Tristicia Languorem. N. Rhone. Also featured were. Les annonces de. Jason Spear. Audrey Daggett. Et Cliff Allen. Radio Flom is produced by Steve Mehalo. Avec Milk Surface, comme lui-même. Theme music by Chelsea Davis. Sound design and engineering by Steve Mahalo. Radio Flom is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. However, recordings of contributors or guests of Radio Flom are still protected under international copyright law. Radio Flom contains works features for review, opinion, critique, and or artistic transformation, and may contain adult content and nudity. Want to be featured on Radio Flom? Drop us a note at www.flom.us slash contact. Flom is a modern art game app, art history resource, faux historical art movement that uses new media to generate interest in art history and education. Flom is an online connection to art history, music, and beyond through Tumblr, Instagram, and other social medias. We are all Flomists and you can be too. Donations graciously accepted at patreon.com slash flomus. We are at flomus on most social medias. Flom is sometimes explained, but usually not. This is Cliff Allen saying thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed this podcast, well, do something about it. Try one. That's a hot dog. 
Here comes some earth. Do you like it? There's no dog in this. Mm -mm. Soybean meal, niacin, dextrose, and sodium nitrate flavoring. That's what we call meat back home. 